0: Welcome to The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. It's been a little over three months since the conclusion of Criticism Limited. The consumption of the series continues, more or less unabated. Thousands of listeners have discovered the series since the beginning of this year, downloading tens of thousands of episodes. My attention has shifted somewhat as I've begun working on the next stereographic series, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, which I hope will begin in late summer. But I have done, or will be doing, a series of projects derived from Criticism Limited. For instance, recent episodes of Money on the Left and High Theory were dedicated to discussing the series and its aftermath. You can find links to those in our episode's homepage. And most recently, I visited Project Narrative at Ohio State, producing a crossover episode with their podcast, which we released on this feed late last week. While there, Jim Phelan, the director of Project Narrative, also asked me to provide a reflection and update during an event we called Criticism Limited, Continuing the Dialogue, which is what you'll be hearing in just a moment. As you'll hear... I make reference to just a few things which have happened since Criticism Limited ended, which are very directly related to its core topics. If you want to bypass my summary and reflection on the series and just listen to how I frame these updates, you can skip to around minute 15 of the episode. While I'm not going to be maintaining a regular release schedule for the next several months, I can't deny my ongoing interest in things like our disciplinary reassessment of close reading, Ponzi austerity crises in West Virginia, New York and Chicago, AI EdTechification, techification, and the reception of books by John Guillory, Andy Hines, Dan Sinikin, Anna Cornblue and others. So, you can probably expect a small handful of standalone epilogues to criticism limited distributed at lengthy intervals on this feed between now and early summer. In this case, my talk from Ohio State, Jim Phelan's response, arguing for the place of narrative theory in discussions of literary studies as a discipline, and the Q&A, during which we fielded questions from Amma Paul Garja, Sandra McPherson, Brian McHale, and Christine Tully, producer of the Defend, Publish, and Lead podcast. For a bibliography of this episode, please visit marktwaynstudies.com backslash ltd or subscribe to my Substack at theamericanvandal.substack.com. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here and be collaborating with Project Narrative. One of the things I learned making my first stereographic podcast, that is a podcast that prioritizes conversations, but blends them with narrative and found audio and musical elements is that at some point you just have to turn the microphones off. And I did more than 30 original interviews, assembled more than 24 hours of raw audio, and there are almost 50 voices in the final cut of Criticism Limited, yet by my own estimation there are some major omissions, among them perhaps narrative theory. One of the names near the top of the list of people who I wanted to talk to, but didn't, was Jim Phelan. In fact, had Gerald Graff said no, Jim was going to be my next call. So I was especially pleased when he reached out after the conclusion of the series and created this opportunity to continue the dialogue. I hope many of you have heard part of the series and I don't want to repeat too much for those who have or spoil it for those who haven't but Jim asked me to begin with some summary. After which i'm going to offer an epilogue of sorts, which covers, and I hope connects two of the subjects, about which I have received the most feedback the Chicago fight and close reading. Among the ways Criticism Limited departs from previous seasons of The American Vandal is that it has a narrative, not just within episodes, but across them. Somebody's are telling somebody else's for some purposes that something's happening to and with criticism. At the most rudimentary level, I conceived of it as proof of life for academic literary criticism. Almost exactly a year ago, I found myself reading a series of what were framed as obituaries for criticism, for literary studies, for the English major, many of them appearing in publications which one might have presumed would have a vested interest in our survival. Many of these obituaries were ostensibly reviews of John Guillory's latest book, Professing Criticism, sometimes in tandem with other recent works about the history and contemporary status of literary criticism. And while all of these works, including Guillory's, substantively acknowledge the continuous defunding of literary studies and the broader humanities within the corporate university accelerating since 2008, most of the reviewers ignored that crisis. And even those few who didn't, treated the divestment from academic literary criticism as a coherent, and even a just response to the crisis of methods within the discipline. Depending on who you read, Guillory's book confirms that we are too political, too theoretical, too pluralistic, too esoteric, too populist, too canonical, too decanonical, or maybe just too critical. What Chris Newfield later characterized as the Tire slashing of literary criticism and literary studies, a tire slashing which continues apace in publications like The Atlantic and The New York Times and elsewhere, seemed to me not only a reductive accounting of what people like Guillory were actually saying, but also deeply complicit with the Yugending of educational institutions being systematically pursued. By people like christopher Rufo, betsy devos and Ron santos at one very superficial level i just wanted to know whether others within literary studies were experiencing this midwinter news cycle as i was and when it became clear that yes many were i began thinking about how we might construct a counterpoint i wanted to interrogate the crisis narratives which i thought were many Intersecting, and sometimes contradictory. There were really only two factors I was trying to control for from the outset. First of all, I wanted a diversity of voices. Senior scholars from R1 institutions like Guillery and Graf, of course, but also mid career and emerging scholars, including graduate students from a wide range of institutional types, fields, and subfields, demographics, and backgrounds. I did not want to reproduce that legacy media trope, where if you want to understand trends in US higher education, what you do is send a reporter to Harvard, or maybe Yale or Berkeley. Or if you're really cutting edge, maybe Stanford or NYU and have them talk to somebody with an endowed chair and a dean and a couple students they run across on the quad and second. While I wanted to remain as agnostic as possible regarding definitions of criticism, to let the polyphony emerge organically from the conversations, there was one definition of criticism that I was completely unwilling to accept, one that was based on venue or more accurately upon prestige. If criticism is only the brilliant minds and most prominent public intellectuals who publish exclusively in a handful of journals, presses and legacy periodicals, then perhaps it is dead or dying. And so be it. I do actually relish what is published in University of Chicago Press, Critical Inquiry, The New Republic, for instance. But the much larger portion of the criticism I consume comes to me from the Para Academy, from venues like Public Books, Las Vegas Review of Books, and Brittle Paper, all venues I profiled, in criticism limited and for podcasts like remarkable receptions and high theory and project narrative and from blogs and newsletters from YouTube channels and zoom events and digital humanities projects and websites like mark And even yes from Facebook groups and Twitter threads. it's not that I privilege criticism in new media over traditional academic outlets. One of the things that emerges in criticism limited is that we need all of it, and it cross pollinates. I just didn't want to ignore what Ryan Ruby had then recently called the golden age of popular criticism. And what was definitely happening in those legacy media obituaries was an illusion of new media. As I got deeper into the process, I recognized what I think of as a Keynesian or maybe more precisely a Galbraithian theory of crisis. That is, financial crises take place on two distinct registers, one material and one conceptual. And sometimes the material and the conceptual are imbricated with one another, and sometimes they aren't, or at least aren't initially. Galbraith sees some panics, for instance, in 1873 and even the year 2000, as almost entirely narrative-based. Most of the people I interviewed, with a few notable exceptions, self identify as literary or cultural critics, as well as as academics. And they overwhelmingly agree that there is a crisis in our working conditions. But there is much disagreement about the precise causes of that crisis, and whether or not there is also a crisis in our methods, and even if so, whether and how those crises are related. The method of criticism limited then was to accumulate and aggregate these varying perspectives with as little preconception as possible. And then roughly imitating the survey of the field one finds in our monographs to excerpt and group selections from the interviews in ways that invite listeners to compare to synthesize to review the episode bibliographies to engage more deeply with the scholars and ideas which most interest them. And then the final step was building a narrative arc which contextualized the groupings and transitions between them and also inevitably created space for my own critical voice. These explicitly narrative elements rarely comprise more than 15% of an episode. But of course, narrativizing was also happening as soon as I excerpted and arranged the interviews just as it does when we select and integrate quotations into textual criticism. When all was said and done, Criticism Limited was structured in four parts. The first four episodes focus on interpretations of the contemporary crisis. These interpretations reappear and are alluded to throughout the series, but they dominate the first quartet. The next four episodes introduced a historical precedent, specifically the circumstances surrounding John Crow Ransom's essay, Criticism Incorporated. Crucial for both Guillory's account and mine, Ransom's 1937 essay both sets the goalpost for professionalized criticism, as they would come to be recognized by new critics and then by US literary studies at large, and acknowledges a debt to the Chicago critics for revealing this path to professionalization, even though simultaneously Ransom implies that the Chicago critics are rivals. To be either defeated or converted by the new criticism. Thus, I turn from the history of new criticism in episode five to answer in episodes six, seven, and eight what happened to the Chicago critics? The third section, consisting of five episodes, explores criticism in new media, as well as changing conditions of production and distribution which impact all forms of criticism, like the conglomeration of publishing the ed techification of universities and the de-skilling of book reviewing in the finale trilogy the empire of criticism i pursue some measure of synthesis emphasizing particularly historicism and post-colonialism and a hypothesis based on jed estes the future of decline that contemporary literary and cultural studies can play a crucial role in acclimating americans to a world after national supremacy I'd be happy to discuss any portion of the series in greater detail during the Q&A, but in the remainder of my prepared remarks, I'm going to turn back to those registers of crisis, the material and the methodological. I have the liberty now to speak only for myself. I tread somewhat cautiously, at least during the series, because it was a collaborative project. And I never wanted to give the false impression That I was molding the interviews to serve my own scholarly idiosyncrasies. But one of the concepts I did introduce to the series was Ponzi austerity. The term was coined by Yanis Varoufakis to describe the specific circumstances of Greece negotiating with the Troika during the eurozone crisis. Varoufakis argues that loans from the ECB and IMF were never intended to stimulate economic recovery in nations like Greece, but were merely cover for bailing out private banks in Germany and France, who could not receive direct capital injections like those used to rescue US banks because national and or EU laws prohibited it. Instead, these banks were made preferred creditors for the crisis nations. The funds from the central banks passed almost instantaneously to the private banks in Western Europe. While Greece was made to warehouse the additional sovereign debt and subject to the strict conditions of austerity which came with it, including discontinuation of social services, the auditing of government spending by EU technocrats and privatization of public goods, sometimes by foreclosure style auctions which benefited those same banks. What I argue is that Ponzi austerity is a useful framework for understanding what's now happening across higher education. The goal pursued by neoliberal lawmakers, corporate lobbies, private donors, and often university administrators and boards of trustees is to redirect public funds to private interests with as little money as possible getting captured by the project of public education. To some degree, this has been going on for decades as colleges and universities overpay for real estate development they don't need and invest massive restricted endowments with financial firms who use them to supercharge leverage and returns. But while all that business as usual is sorted enough, I'm even more alarmed by recent phenomena, like paying massive subscription fees to venture backed ed tech companies who provide poorly developed platforms students and staff don't want or use or paying consulting firms seven-figure fees for cookie cutter slideshows created by entry-level associates with no background in education policy except the consultancy's in-house ideology or administrators racking up tens of millions in catered events and junkets associated obliquely with fundraising the promised returns from which are always on a distant and unspecified time horizon. And finally, the creation of what are often called private-public partnerships, programs and academic centers, which are founded with highly publicized private donations, but often require matching contributions from the university such that the educational institution is actually contracting to subsidize the research and development for private corporations or promote the pet ideology of a donor network nearly every imaginable mechanism of Ponzi austerity contributed to the downsizing of West Virginia University last year under Gordon G there was the cost of much publicized charter flights for G trustees and other upper administrators which the Charleston Gazette mail reported had ballooned to over 12 million dollars during G's tenure more than a quarter of the budget shortfall he was then using to justify financial exigency. There was G's promise that the course offerings lost by dissolving the World Languages and Literature Department could be replaced by a partnership with a for-profit language learning application. And there is the as yet unknown millions spent on superfluous building projects, which have either been suspended indefinitely or set empty because the programs that were to be housed in them have been discontinued but the Ponzi austerity project which most stood out for me was the Kendrick Center for ethical economy which WVU announced in early 2022 and committed to matching donor contributions to the tune of 20 million dollars over 10 years the donors for whom the center is named Ken and Randy Kendrick Majority owners of the Arizona Diamondbacks baseball team made their fortune by growing and selling the ed tech company Datatel, which you here at Ohio State may know better as Ellucian. People who criticize Ellucian in public sometimes get sued. So I'll just say that the company is now co-owned by two of the largest private equity firms and ed tech sector investors in the world, Blackstone and Vista. If you want my full critique of the relationship between private equity, ed tech, and higher education, you can listen to episode 13 of Criticism Limited or read Jason Wingard's EdTech Gryptophia in LA Review of Books. The Kendricks are part of the notorious Koch Brothers donor network, but I think the best way to get a sense of what they mean by ethical economy is to consider the ethicists they hired, Ryan Kogelman and Chris Freiman. Both are philosophy PhDs from University of Arizona, where they both held Kendrick fellowships at the University of Arizona's Freedom Center. Founded in 2008, the largest initial donation to the Freedom Center came from, you guessed it, Ken and Randy Kendrick. But the Freedom Center is now maintained by $2 million of annual funding from the state. The historian David Gibbs calls it the academic unit of the Republican Party, which plunders the education budgets of its home state to advocate for, among other things, abolishing public education. Those of you who have listened to criticism limited will recognize this as the long tail of the Chicago fight. The economics imperialism which took over University of Chicago during the mid century, in part as a campaign of vengeance against humanists including the Chicago critics who had supported the administration of Robert Maynard Hutchins, did so by normalizing the policy of donor directives. Not only were donors allowed, even encouraged, to place restrictions on how their funds were dispersed, but they sometimes were invited to set those terms retrospectively, as was the case for the Walgreen Chair. So donors could determine long-term strategic planning and budgeting by locking the university into expenditures, even after the donated funds had been exhausted. By this method, University of Chicago was turned into what Hutchins dubs a folk institution, rather than a center of independent thought. He predicts in an interview with Studs Terkel in 1959, that the American university as folk institution, will become beholden to the whims, hysterias, and fancies of any organized group that is sufficiently solvent to make itself attractive to administrators who want to raise money. Nowhere was administration by sycophancy pursued more aggressively than the University of Chicago, where the formation of special projects, centers, institutes, and initiatives inaugurated by large gifts Became a means of circumventing faculty governance, stoking zero-sum competition between disciplines, and insulating upper administration from both students and the instructional labor force. As Lee Harris documents in an astounding investigative series for the Chicago Maroon in 2020, Hyde Park has become the home to over a hundred purportedly autonomous research modules, many of which have vague names, like The Knowledge Lab and the Center for Practical Wisdom. Even vaguer charges and entirely secret, potentially non-existent productivity. Though each of them was founded with funds from granting organizations, corporate partners, and private donors, the provost admitted that, at least in aggregate, the centers and institutes had become net consumers of resources their sustenance assured by contracts the institution made to secure the gifts, even if the gifts were insufficient to ensure the sustenance throughout the period of the contract. In one especially egregious case, it was discovered that the donation which was supposed to endow the Stavanovich Institute for the Formation of Knowledge to be directed by Shadi Barch, the, the wife of then President Robert Zimmer, never actually materialized. The private equity principal and CEO after whom the center was to be named the second step Institute at the University of Chicago simply never delivered the funds. But the project proceeded anyway, the millions required either being diverted away from instructional budgets or added to the institutions ballooning debt, which has now placed the University of Chicago, one of the most prestigious influential and well-endowed educational institutions in the world on the verge of declaring financial exigency and potentially, like West Virginia, laying off tenured faculty and shuttering popular programs. What becomes clear about the culture of Ponzi austerity is that the donor class feels utterly entitled to strip mine universities for their own edification. They have come to see the subsidization of their enterprises and ideological apparatuses as the appropriate objective of the university system and when it does not function adequately or exclusively to that end they throw tantrums perhaps never more publicly than what bill ackman has been doing recently at harvard obviously humanities faculty and students are frequently victims of ponzi austerity as our budgets which are actually quite small and usually produce strong returns, as Chris Newfield has exhaustively shown, get further shrunk to offset capital flows into the private-public partnerships and expenditures on tech, admin, and real estate. But the humanities are not uniquely victimized, a misconception which can fuel competition, aggrievement, and counterproductive attitudes towards other departments and disciplines with whom we should be organizationally, if not methodologically aligned. To cite just one recent example, the financial exigency cuts at UNC Greensboro announced earlier this month, discontinued anthropology, geography, and physics and rolled religious studies into another division, but shuttered no humanities departments. What humanists have to contribute to this period of polycrisis is not, I want to emphasize, simply our martyrdom. But what is it? I have received a torrent of responses to Criticism Limited addressing a wide range of issues within the series, but there are two topics which stand out, only one of which I'm going to address today, and that is the vitality of close reading, independent of its historical association with new criticism. The urgency of these responses was reinforced for me in the months since Criticism Limited ended during which we've seen the publication of Jonathan Kramnik's Criticism and Truth on Method and Literary Studies, which is largely a defense of close reading. New work by Joseph North previewed recently for Iowa's Fate of Professional Reading series, also profiled in Criticism Limited, argues that close reading is indeed political though not in precisely the conservative way Andy Hines postulates. And the announcement of a forthcoming collection focused on historicizing close reading from Dan Sinekin and Joanna Winnant, which I had the pleasure of discussing with them on The American Vandal last month. Combined with Guillory's own forthcoming work on the subject, which he mentions in Criticism Limited, I propose that we are on the verge of an anxious reassessment and likely retrenchment of close reading. One of the questions which has dogged close reading, since the confrontation between Vanderbilt and Chicago during the interbellum, is what is at stake? Are close readings mere performances, invitations to appreciation and reappreciation of their critical objects, as well as the cleverness and the capaciousness of the critic? Or is there a morality, ethics, or politics, either intrinsic to the method itself, or incumbent upon the critic to produce by close reading. When I recognized that there was an implicit alliance between the new critics and the Chicago School economists in their mutual desire to defeat the Chicago critics and plunder their cultural capital, I briefly entertained the hypothesis that close reading might be the literary studies equivalent of the Chicago School's micro foundations, a method that extrapolates the macro from the micro via a process of synecdoche dependent upon specious and often unstated presumptions this is the mortal sin of neoclassical economics according to john maynard kings behaviors of parsimony which produce prosperity for an individual will result in depression if deployed as policy and profligate spending which might bankrupt a small business Will create multiplier effects which stimulate a national economy. Micro foundations, though part of an elegant theory which can underwrite reassuring quantitative methods are not only useless for macroeconomic forecasting and policymaking, but actively dangerous. Are we liable to make an analogous mistake when we begin with words, sentences? and grammatical details to generate arguments which frequently escalate into dynamic large-scale truth claims. I continued flirting with this analogy for months, even after Criticism Limited concluded. During the series, Anna Dorothea Schneider describes the difference between Vanderbilt and Chicago school critics as a difference between induction and deduction. John Gillery makes a somewhat analogous claim As has Jim in his descriptions of the first generation of the Chicago critics. The emphasis on narrative structure, genre, rhetorical situation, intertextuality, pluralism, and later historicism, and maybe even distant reading, which one finds in the Chicago critics and their disciples might be akin to reorienting around the macro, which sustains by its scale, a healthy sense of awe, awareness of the limits of our comprehension, and therefore caution. And caution is really the charge of the moment for the humanities, I think. To chase in the audacity and overreach of the technological solutionism, which grows more desperate with each creep up the wet bulb thermometer. But two things have recently changed my thinking about where close reading fits in the triangulation of caution, polycrisis, and too late capitalism. First, Kramnik's book, and in particular his characterization recalling the critique of Nanzida, zida of ascendant computational literary criticism. Which looks elsewhere than close reading precisely motivated by that ever present incentive within the university as well as without to be quantitative. The triumphalist colonization of the qualitative by the quantitative is a story that we cannot broadcast too loudly or regret too mournfully without being shouted down. But it has turned journalism into clicks, sociality into counts, and education into scores. Computational imperialism is a direct descendant of economics imperialism, a genealogy which can be traced through Chicago school outposts at places like Stanford, NYU, and George Mason. And in the missions of centers and institutes at Chicago and elsewhere, that so often explicitly seek algorithms, models, and a mad dash transfiguration of everything into numbers legible to a proprietary trading algorithm. By endowing the Institute for Quantitative Biology and Human Behavior, for instance, Sanford Grossman, another Chicago economics PhD turned hedge fund manager, was explicitly trying to map human behavior onto immutable biological characteristics. Presumably for the purpose of extrapolating consumption patterns from dem- demographics or vice versa, the project faculty rightly recognized as for-profit eugenics with a techno-utopian veil. In US culture, since the turn of the century, a single Chicago School of Economics graduate, Nate Silver, has turned analysis into a synonym for accounting, turned campaign reporting into polling aggregation, and by increasing cost certainty for management has ruined baseball. The widespread faith that everything can be quantified, especially endemic to Wall Street and Silicon Valley, originates, I think, with Milton Friedman's The Methodology of Positive Economics, which in short, argues that anything which can't be quantified should be ignored. But it has gone far beyond even Friedman's recommendations, which when you read his essay are conditioned by a sense of irony and rhetorical bombast befitting his perception, probably accurate in 1953, that both the academy and the public were not sufficiently numerate. The most dystopic iteration of computational imperialism has emerged very recently in the speculative euphoria around generative AI. The most punch drunk version of which has been articulated by Google co-founder and venture capitalist Larry Page, who has gone so far as to call our preference for organic non computational intelligence, in other words, our preference for life sentimental nonsense. In the face of such monomaniacal hubris, you can see how Kramnik comes to the conclusion that close readings contingency its irreplicability, its expansiveness, its evidentiary variety, its undefinability, and even its lack of confidence are features to be promoted and vigorously defended. Close readings may often be inconclusive or even outright wrong, but economic forecasts, trading algorithms, polling aggregators, and generative adversarial networks also, frequently create conflicting, hallucinatory, and even collectively verifiably wrong analyses, and you would never bet the house, your savings, or the future of humanity on a close reading.
1: Well, thanks, Matt. There's so much there, and I'll just stop by saying I, I think, as a listener to the podcast, I. I feel like you did a great job distilling it, which was not an easy thing to do, I'm sure. But then also supplementing it with further thoughts, particularly on Ponzi austerity and close reading. I'm going to start with my own sort of soundbite summary, which I hope will complement your account, it's not competing with it at all. To so say, Criticism Limited gives valuable double attention to contemporary literary criticisms, history, methods politics and formats and by double attention I mean you and your guests address matters as interdisciplinary issues that are inevitably influenced by extradisciplinary forces your remarks today also illustrate that aspect of the series I think with a lot of attention to the extradisciplinary forces and then moving more to the interdisciplinary when you get to the close reading comments right now I think this double perspective is really one of the most valuable and appealing features of the series, but because I want to keep my remarks limited and get more voices in. I'm going to just focus on uh, a couple matters related to the interdisciplinary issues picking up on your opening remark that maybe the, one of the omissions was a narrative theory. I could say well how might attention to narrative theory add something to the conversations in the series. And then second one is how might some Chicago school ways of thinking contribute to some of the debates about close reading? Before I launch too much in this, I want to acknowledge a worry I had when doing this response, which is that it might belong to what's arguably the most tiresome of academic genres, which I think of as the complaint about the terrible neglect of my own and my own tribe's genius now work in this genre is not often published but i venture to say we've all encountered many examples of it now i've told myself that my remarks today right don't really fit in the genre because my purpose is not to say as other texts in the genre often do we're engaged in a battle between the forces of error that is everybody else and the forces of truth me and my tribe instead my goal is to try to reinforce and add to what I see as the many forces of truth evident in criticism limited okay well what if anything would be gained by adding narrative theory to the conversations I see three potential gains the first one I think is especially important now People outside of literature departments, whether existing in the university or other parts of the real world, can readily connect with at least some work in the field. You know, it's a truth universally acknowledged that narrative is everywhere. And that truth means that the projects of narrative theory are readily recognized, or at least we can make the case that they they have general relevance people who don't know Wayne Booth from Adam's Off Ox throw around the term unreliable narrator because they find it to be an apt way to describe many storytellers they encounter. I would suggest that a significant subset of such people readily see the value of doing a deeper dive into the phenomenon. Are all unreliable narrators created equal? Are there multiple ways to be unreliable? And so on. So what's true of this technique, I think, is true of many other concepts that narrative theory dives into. Character, time, space, perspective taking. Now, to be sure, narrative theorists have sometimes worked against themselves by letting their interest, what I'm going to generously say, their interest in precision override accessibility, intelligibility even, right? So it's one thing to say that Huckleberry Finn is sometimes reliable and sometimes unreliable as a character narrator. And it's another thing to say, as we narratologists can, Huck is an extra diegetic homo narrator with variable reliability, whose narration is also peppered with intradiegetic heterodiegetic telling of similar variability. It's all true, but what does it mean, right? So we get in our, our own way, right? But I want to say, the abuse of a thing is no argument against it. So the second potential gain of bringing narrative theory into the conversation is that it presents one model for how literary criticism and theory can be effectively marshaled to address practical problems in the world. So two prominent examples are the work of Erin James and her colleagues at the University of Idaho in what they call the Confluence Lab, and the work of Rita Sharon and her colleagues at Columbia University in developing the field of narrative medicine. To describe the Confluence Lab I'll quote two sentences from their website. The first sentence comes under the heading, who we are. The Confluence Lab engages in creative interdisciplinary research projects that bring together scholars in the arts, humanities and sciences, together with community members to engage in environmental issues impacting rural communities. That's who we are. And the second quotation is under the heading Our Primary Goal. Our central premise is that the tools of the humanities and arts, especially those related to storytelling, representation, emotions and communications, are important complements to scientific knowledge and can help develop novel approaches to environmental issues such as public land use, wildland fire and fire management, and the causes and effects of climate change. As for narrative medicine, Reader Sharon's reasoning works this way. since storytelling is central to interactions between caregivers and their patients, training caregivers to become adept listeners to their patients' stories can improve outcomes. And the best way to help caregivers become better listeners is to give them some training in narrative theory. So applied narrative theory. The third possible gain of adding narrative theory to the conversation is one I propose much more tentatively, since I'm very tentative about this, because it depends on a characterization of literary history that I worry literary historians will find inadequate. And if so, yeah, tell me but I want to try it out in the interest of dialogue and debate. Narrative theory provides one model for how literary criticism can be an enterprise that makes clear forward progress rather than an enterprise characterized by movements from one set of interests and emphases to another. I say with great confidence that we know more about narrative than we did 50 years ago. To be sure, I hasten to say, with an equal confidence that we know more about a great deal of literary history than we did 50 years ago. But what I wanna suggest is that narrative theory's modes of inquiry perhaps better lend themselves to an ongoing integrative project than literary history's modes that tend to emphasize previously neglected primary works, previously neglected aspects of historical context, and a changing set of theoretical perspectives on its objects of study. So narrator theory advances by starting with existing theory and seeking to revise and extend it furthermore the case for any one proposal is connected to its interpretive consequences typically to take just one of many examples gerald prince recognizes that the field's productive attention to the narrator opens up the need for a concept of the narrator's audience which he calls the narrative then our colleague robert warhol working within the framework of feminist narratology that she and Sue Lanza were developing, builds on Prince's work by studying different ways that 19th century novelists use direct addresses by third-person narrators to their narratees. That study leads Robin to propose a valuable distinction between engaging and distancing direct address, a distinction that both illuminates the novels Robin analyzes and provides concepts relevant for other narratives. Raman's work has in turn generated further investigations into the narrative, right, so they're lather, rinse, the lather, repeats repeat the seriality of narrative theory. I want to close by saying a few things about close reading, if only because at one point I suggested to Matt that there were aspects of the history of the Chicago School that I thought needed more attention. Rather than talking about those specifics, uh, I want to offer a few thoughts about the current debate about close reading informed by my perspective as a longtime journal editor influenced by Chicago School of pluralism. The first suggestion is that we might advance the debate by decentering close reading, proposing to f- approach literary criticism as a discipline whose practitioners seek to contribute multiple kinds of knowledge about literature. Literary critics proceed by asking valuable questions, about or investigating substantial problems about one or more aspects of their objects of study, literature, literary works, and things related to them. And then by adapting existing methods or inventing new ones to propose answers and solutions to those questions and problems. Close reading is often one of these methods, but it gets adapted in different ways by different critics according to both different starting points what's my fundamental uh, understanding of a literary text is it a system of signs is it a, a site for the exploration of cultural conflicts, etc cetera, etc cetera? so close reading the kind of close reading you do is going to be affected by that kind of starting point and also by the kind of goal that you have from this perspective then i would be inclined to say that computational analyses they're not doing close reading but they're capable of producing one kind of valuable knowledge about literature they think about objects of study differently and so on and there's not necessarily a competition between their results and the results of work that's focused on close reading of a smaller number of texts i have more to say about all these things including some thoughts on why narrative theory was not an integral part of Criticism limited. I'll just summarize that point by saying that I think narrative theory has its own narrative problem. It too easily falls out of accounts of the history of criticism. Why it too easily falls out is perhaps something we can discuss in the Q and A. But I feel like I've gone on long enough, and it's time to get more voices in the dialogue. So over to all of you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I can't resist. Um, uh, so I guess, you know, there's a lot to, to ask. But I guess I wanted to ask one thing, which is something like, how much does method actually matter? And, and here's what I mean by that. Actually, after an undergraduate class, I, talk about John Giori, I have this kind of idea that like, okay, when I look at, you know, something written in PMLA or ELH from so like 1979, It'll all be signifiers, signifieds, you know, like the trace. And then if I looked at something from like 1962, it'd all be close reading or something like that. And then if I looked at something that you know, I was in 1989, it would all be like newest sources. But actually, when you look at any of those editions, there's a vast amount of continuity. You know, there's like some history, there's some like close reading, there's some kind of formal analysis, mm-hmm. and often some biographical mm-hmm. criticism, even within them. You know, like Jay Burns, you know, it's like a close reading, but there's also like history. You look at Cynthia Chase on um, Daniel Miranda, she's like this arch deconstructionist, but she talks about the biography, she talks about history. And so then I'm like, okay, well, if these methods are so important, you know, there's like thematic changes, like post colonial, mm-hmm. whatever emphasis or, yeah. you know, gender emphasis, but it doesn't seem like there's these. Huge methodological changes. They are represented sometimes, but the vast majority, I think, of PMLO issues, you could still kind of read and, and get something out of. Which relates to something Jim said about, you know, one problem with the progress narrative is that nothing is ever disproved in narrative theory. or in proofs, you know, what I often tell my students this, which is like no one in the sciences, or it's like phlogistic. Like, let's go back to that. You know, like Ptolemy, like you know, like, like, that's some shit to really, like, seriously think about, you know. Um, but we routinely are like, Aristotle, stuff? You know what I mean? But like, like, what about Plato? Like, you know, so I guess I've got two questions. One, whether you think that's right, you know, that there's actually a vast amount of kind of continuity despite all these changes. And then, you know, I'm right, like, then what's the point exactly of thinking about these And secondly, if you're right that there are means progress... How can there be progress when it's just accumulation, like when nothing is actually ever disproved?
0: Well, so the first part of that question, I would say, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And something that I said over and over again in the series is that I've never been particularly uncomfortable with the kind of big tent conception of literary studies. there There are all these different things we can do within it. And that has always seemed to me a feature more than a bug of being in an English department, a comparative literature department, a literary studies department, however it is conceived, that you're going to be surrounded by people who are approaching text from wildly different methodological approaches. Those are, those are maybe a little bit less different, but certainly, you know, the kinds of interdisciplinary backgrounds that they are accumulating...
2: If I can just interrupt. Yeah. Like, I actually don't think that there are, that, that's my point. It's like yeah. It kind of seems the same, you know what I mean? Like, it's not all that different,
0: I guess. Is that yeah, I, I think I understand what you're saying in that it remains legible across a long period of time in the way that if you read, say, the economics journals, or you read probably some of the hard sciences journals, even if you are a specialist, the works produced 20, 40 years ago may seem to be using a kind of jargon, a set of assumptions that are completely foreign to you. That's definitely self-consciously the case in economics, which tries to deny that it has a history at all. And, and so yeah, I would agree that there is a legibility over time, which may be in part because we're trained to be good readers. <laughs> right. But I think that there is also a, a polyphony, a pluralism, a set of commitments that literary critics and literary scholars have that are quite various. I find that very inviting. And so to the second part of your question, before I pass it off to Jim, the problem that John Gillery, among others, has noted about that is that that's very hard to defend to our administrators, our deans, sometimes even to granting organizations, and certainly to the so-called gun-toting businessman, as, Bru- as Bruce Robbins puts it. Whether we should have to appeal to any of those things, <laughs> there, I think, was a period, a relatively short period, in the American Academy where we didn't, right? But now, certainly, we do, right? And that's where the kind of pluralism, the big tent, And and even, as you say, a sense of maybe consistency over time and a lack of a potentially progressive narrative works against us, right? If we have produced this enormous corpus of literary criticism that's all somewhat flat and equal over the course of hundreds of years, why can't we just be done? right? Shutter the department, put that on JSTOR, and, you know, have students read a little bit of it in their freshman year, All right? Success. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah so a uh, couple things, right? I think to some degree it may be a question of where you stand, where you stand as you're looking at it, but right? if you're standing back and you're saying, okay, can I recognize these elements?
3: And could come to, I
1: think what you're saying is kind of valid conclusion. But I think that what happens more is that things get transformed. So new criticism, right? Okay, close reading. We're going to look at the image patterns, and you know nobody wants to do that today as the main thing, right? And I actually think that's progress. But you're right. Some version of that still occurs, right? But I think it's transformed it's in a different way. I would also say that things are disproved. And I would point to two people who were pretty prominent in the 80s who no longer argued for the position. Who were going to transform them. And the reason, I think, is because they were unsustainable positions. The first one is Stanley Fish. Right? And when he went to this idea that there's no text, and right, it's all determined by interpretive community, it's radical and it creates all this buzz and so on, right? But it's unsustainable. And he himself, whenever he wants to make an argument with somebody else, he's got to point to something where they have something in common and there's a recalcitrance that's possible. So he, he's not arguing right anymore. Nobody else, is. he doesn't have any followers. And the other I would point to is sort of uh, Yale School deconstruction, especially, and, and then my example there would be Hillens-Miller. So he writes fiction and repetition, seven-book right, a, a seven English novel. and what he's doing is that and brilliantly performing deconstructive readings of these novels, right, by looking at repetitions and doing the deconstructive thing, how the, the language actually contains its opposite, et cetera, et cetera. He stopped doing that. And I think partly because he became more political. Like he gave this amazing paper on the stromo at a Joseph Conrad conference in two thousand five, shortly after Hurricane Katrina. And he's linking the stromo to climate change and, and hurricane Katrina. And it's like what happened to Hillis,
2: the deconstructionist? It's
1: not. I mean, obviously it's a bigger conversation, but, but that, you know,
2: I, I wonder about both of those examples. In particular, the, like, no one can write about House without wrestling, or Jay Hillis Miller's interpretation. So yeah, that's not as deconstructors one, right? It's a pretty deconstructionist, I mean, okay. you know, and, and so it, it yeah. still feels true in a way. Anyway, yeah, you know,
1: yeah, like, yeah. I, I think like, it would yeah. go back to the transforming yeah, thing, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. What thought so, like yeah. other people. Sandra first and then Brian.
3: Yeah, this is so fascinating, and I just I have so many. Uh, I guess I just wanted to ask that about the sort of relation between the beginning of your comment and the end of your comment. Uh, so the beginning is was sort of a defense of or critique of you know sites of academic prestige and sort of interest in the paraliterary, and then the end is sort of to Jonathan Cramnick, you know, the Maynard Mack professor of English yeah. at yeah. Yale, uh, as this sort of voice for, uh, you, know, uh, yeah. um, you know, resolving this, yeah. you know, contradiction between, or, or this, this relation between the tri- tripartite, you know, yeah. uh, crises. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by that contradiction, mm-hmm. other kinds of contradiction as well, that I'm often really just Kind of, I don't know what to make of, so, you know, the, sort of, the emergence of the paraliterary vocation mm-hmm. for criticism as a response to these external pressures, right, mm-hmm. of uh, the job crisis, has produced this very intense coterie culture, I think, which even maybe your podcast is a sort of example of, and that coterie does not at all get you away from, say, once again Yale. But also, uh, another contradiction has to do with technology. It's a coterie that came out of a moment in the Twitter sphere, in you know the 2010s and forward. That's where Diana Johanna and Anna Cornbrew and mm-hmm. Merve herself. You know, but so I guess I wonder about all those contradictions and mm-hmm. whether there's any place to remain sort of pure (laughs) or where when politics is not going to produce the kind of repetition of privilege on other terms Mm -hmm. that I've sort of seen as the Mm -hmm. solution to the ongoing crisis.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, in short, short, I mean, no, there's no place to remain pure. (laughs) <laughs> I, feel, I feel very confident about that. But to go back to the first, the first part of your question, which I think has several layers, all of which I take very seriously, and and one of the things that has worried me as the American vandal has become more popular is that that coterie kind of thing that that you're talking about. Right? It's, I. I do not want to produce a new hegemony for literary studies. I do want to produce some sense of community and collectivism in a place that provides the opportunity for a wide array of scholars to come together. But it, it, it has been brought to my attention, you are not the first, right? That there is now a significant population, often of relatively precarious members within the profession who because of our working conditions are very dependent on things like podcasts, including mine, but also things like high theory and others. And that those podcasts become their access to a a sense of what are the trends in my profession? You know, what are the new books that I should care about? What are the new ideas that I should care about? That's not exactly a mantle that I want to take on. And so I, I take that without having any kind of, real ability to say very strongly what I'm going to do to avoid it, I also want to acknowledge that I'm aware of it. The other thing there that I think is really interesting is a kind of contradiction between Kramnik and the Para Academy. And the short answer for why did I turn to Kramnik at the end is uh, that's the book I'm reading right now that just came out. And I'm thinking there are probably other critics who I could have turned to, to do a relatively similar thing about defending close reading. Although one of the things that, that Jonathan does in that book is really t- accept the undefinability of close reading, and instead look at the practice, like let's look at the documents as they exist. Let's not try to synthesize them into some sort of continuity of method. But as Jim and I were in fact talking about this afternoon. There is another claim that Jonathan's making there that I've considered including in this talk but I uh, excise for for time constraints mainly, which is that close reading is writing and that close reading is insoluble from writing. And I find that very hard to stomach, partially as a podcaster, (laughs) right? But also as a teacher, right? And he, he directly addresses himself to... Burma and Heffernick into the Teaching Archive, and one of the claims they make, which is that close reading happens far more often in the classroom than it does in our books and papers. And so I would utterly agree that although there's a portion of Kramnick's argument that I am increasingly sympathetic to, the portion that it has to do with seeing close reading as some sort of resistance to the quantitative there's another portion which still holds on to a kind of exceptionalism for written texts. I'm I'm less sympathetic to, it. and I do think that those two portions of his argument might be drawing in in opposite directions. And I I will admit I haven't finished the book yet. Maybe he finds a way to to synthesize. Right, but you make a very strong point there that. If, you know, if we're going to think about close reading in practice, we can't lean exclusively on an endowed chair from Yale. (laughs) But I also think his book is just one amongst several, including those forthcoming from Dan and Joanna, who self-consciously constructed a collection that is primarily composed of Close readings done by emergent scholars. And so it'll be very interesting to see Guillory and Kramnik and, and Joseph North in conversation with something like Dan, Dan and, and Joanna's collection.
3: I mean, he's, you know, he actually, he and okay, R.A. disagree, and, 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 and Guillory frankly disagree about the importance of the paraliterary. I mean, mm-hmm. she, what Guillory and Emory share is a commitment literary as, you know, the necessary alternative to, and, you know, perhaps a, a way around the institutional crisis and dynamic very committed to the institutionality of what we do. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, uh, i persuaded by that, mm-hmm. um, but it means that there's a lot of emphasis on the shared cultural and practical norms that one is teaching graduate students, mm-hmm. and you know, teaching at an institution like this where literary history is disappearing, it's not clear to me for whom we are continuing to teach this close reading, you know, method in all its plurality when, you know, not just that there are no jobs for those people, but that even the people who teach at R1 are not teaching literature and are not teaching literature. Um, you solve that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: no so matt I'm, I'm curious about your road to damascus moment about close reading You mm-hmm. um, uh, changed your mind because
3: mm-hmm.
2: i think that it, that implies that you're backing away from what i heard in the in the podcast itself was mm-hmm. the main critique a close reading, which had to do with its source, mm-hmm. that it was contaminated at the source because mm-hmm. it was invented by a coterie of white supremacists and neo-Confederates, you know, boss-causists, yeah. which I think is a, a, a terrible argument, actually, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, because the guys are unacceptable, yeah. and the idea is unacceptable, which is actually quite a standard method of. Yeah argumentation piece, yeah. right, which has the end result of basically rolling out almost all of our inherited yeah. methods and ideas because everybody was a white supremacist. Yeah.
0: You know, <laughs>
2: and, and, and you know, all of the babies get thrown out into that bathroom. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I wonder how do you extract, I, you know, so yeah. I don't know that, you, that, that these uh, sort of ad hominem arguments were actually coming from your mouth but uh, they were from some of your interviewees. Yeah, and It sounds to me like you have to, you have to like, cut yourself loose
0: from that in order to find the yeah. close reading. Something. Yeah, no, I think the road to Damascus analogy is, is a fitting one. And I would agree, certainly when I finished reading Andy Hines' book, I, I was pretty, pretty persuaded yeah. that close reading was at least to some degree infected, less as a method and more as a political economy this thing that we could teach, this thing that we could use to bind the discipline together, that we could use to justify its professionalization, and especially to root out and eliminate a kind of pluralistic version of literary studies. And so I would absolutely agree that I, I I do have a tendency to feel as though the sins at, at the moment of inception oftentimes do redound through the generations. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. right. <laughs> but in terms of narrating how I got away from that, I would say that there's a few a few steps. One is just a series of invisible interlocutors that either while Criticism limited was going on or afterwards, including Jim, who wrote to me and said, this, this just isn't adequate. We can't reduce close reading to the new critics. And certainly thinking about what close reading looks like for somebody like Frederick Jameson, a kind of lineage of Russian formalism and Marxist literary criticism, in which Lukács, so on and so forth, another kind of version from which we could extract something like close reading. And what we actually do get into at the end of Criticism Limited, to some extent with Becky Carver in particular, is that, oh, wait, there's this whole other set of, you know, self-identified new critics like William Impson, whose politics are not so bad, <laughs> right? And who are being celebrated, at least to some degree, by the Vanderbilt School, but who are radicals and socialists in Britain and who, in some ways, I think Impson's close reading is far more compelling than Ransom is, right? Uh, And so over the course of that series of conversations, I I started to question to what extent we had to throw out the one with the other. I, I do think acknowledging the extent to which new criticism continues To have some valence in the way that we teach, even though we oftentimes characterize it as a very antiquated and regrettable phenomenon. There are ways in which new criticism formed the Literary Studies Academy, and maybe close reading isn't the thing that we need to deny about it. But the the structures of our department often can be traced back to to new criticism in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes even, certainly this was true at Elmira College when I got there, boy, did our course curriculum look a lot like something that would have been completely comfortable for new critics. Maybe I need to look to other places (laughs) than, than just close reading. But I I am still persuaded by Andy Hines's idea that we have not cast off everything about new criticism to the degree that maybe we would like to tell ourselves that we have. Um, And then, you know, the the final moment, which I actually, I think, do get into the the paper to some degree, is beginning to think about can close reading be the qualitative method that is irreducible to our computational imperialism. There are so many things which we are being told, writing instruction most aggressively, are going to be eliminated or sufficiently integrated into our computational future. And I'm definitely on the lookout, as I hope all of us are, for the things that can't be. <laughs> ChatGPT can't close read, not yet, at least. Right. And you know, this might be one of the ways in which we push back against the kind of post-humanist capitalist exceptionalism, which is running away right now, unchecked and incredibly frightening
3: like about producing the podcast itself yeah um, i run a weekly podcast and i know that that has really changed how i think about narrative how i produce my writing and i just wondered if just in the actually producing it and not just the content that you're getting when you're talking to me yes. but the actual process of producing it have it changed anything for you
0: oh yeah i mean so many things that it would be hard for me to catalog them
3: i think and
0: it's, def- it's definitely as mediums do, right? Shaping the way I think, I'm sort of consciously trying to create a annual schedule where I go into the podcast and and I, I linger there and labor there for you know six months something like that. But then I come out, right? Because if if all I do is podcasts, pretty soon it'll become hard to write a long form essay that. that the way that I structure my arguments, the way that I think is is going to be shaped by the medium that I'm working most frequently in. So right now, I'm in one of those periods where I'm trying not to think about podcasting <laughs> rather am trying to get back to writing and, and, and you know giving talks and doing the other kinds of more conventional academic genres, because I do think those things, and this is you know, a point that I think I, I heard over and over again in, in Criticism Limited, not just from myself, but from, from many others. It, there, there needs to be a cross pollination between sort of conventional academic forms and wow. new media. And, and podcasting is great, and these para-academic publications, I think, are fantastic. And you know, digital humanities, data visualization, video essays, there's all these new mediums that I think provide an enormous amount of potential for criticism and other modes of literary discourse. But I don't want them to lose the carefully researched, archivally-based
2: monograph,
0: right? Or the peer-reviewed essay in a relatively specialized literary journal. I I will be very, very disappointed and I'm very, very worried about this at many institutions. If our deans, our provosts, they start saying, you know what? And this is I mean, this is already happening to me. Matt, I don't know. I don't care if you publish in the American Literary History, and, and that's going to happen for some public humanities scholars. Right? That the, the pressure upon them, the expectations for tenure and promotion, are going to be designed around the public
3: humanities work
0: that they do, and that might be okay, but only if that is one mode and one track, and we don't lose the the tracks that create the deeply researched, long-form, textual forms of scholarship without which something like Criticism Limited can't exist, right? If if we don't have, you know, Andy Hines's book or Jed Estes' book or the various projects that even preceded those books, then Criticism Limited doesn't make a lot of sense, right? The the two have to be synchronized. uh, So so I'm I celebrate new media. I'm definitely informed by new media. I definitely worry about the colonization of my brain by new media. (laughs) More so, of course, by social media than by podcasts. But I also think that dialectic can be fruitful and has been fruitful. It is already being fruitful. But there will come a point where we have to defend the monograph where we have to, as apparently has already happened here, we have to defend the university press. We have to defend the peer-reviewed journal and the forms of specialization that are primarily circulated through those meetings. That point is, is coming, I fear. Um, maybe we'll be prepared for it? Yeah, I
1: mean, that opens up a whole lot of other things. Like- just the future of publishing right with open access and what's the business model for open access and yeah. nobody's figured that out yet but it's it's the future yeah but that's that's yeah another, another
0: event it is but it's I I mean I I don't totally think that giving our labor away to for-profit entities like EBSCO is another form of yeah. Ponzi austerity yeah. and and, and finding a way for our journals, you know, our peer reviewed work to circulate outside of that system should be more of a priority than it has been so far. Yeah. I mean there is a little bit
1: of good news to report, mm-hmm. like Project News is yeah. now doing this mm-hmm. open access thing, which is mm-hmm. right, you know, narrative before that I'm really happy all right well thank you all for coming and let's give Matt a big round of applause
0: thank you thank you so much for more about this episode including a bibliography you can visit marktwaynestudies.com backslash after criticism ldt or subscribe to my sub at theamericanvandal.substack.com thanks for listening